We are starting a uh, mini-series as a church, a four-part series called Passing the Baton. And we'll we'll do this mini-series, just four messages. It'll take us into October. Then we'll be in the book of Philippians for a little while uh, as we enjoy God's Word, His living and active Word. But we're taking some time uh, in this mini-series to pause and and really, by God's grace, seeking to uh, establish a biblical benchmark for us as a church. Uh, And and what I mean is is we're seeking to just establish and look at what the Scriptures teach about this idea of, of transitioning the leadership and life of our church to the next generation. We just want to study God's Word. We want to, to learn. And, and we really believe that the time uh, for us right now is a critical time to evaluate ourselves in light of Scripture, to seek Him, and to de- dedicate ourselves to passing the baton to the next generation. Now, I just want to qualify that a little bit because those of you who are of maybe my generation or the next older generation I may be thinking, well, what's he saying? Is he saying we're going to pass the baton to the, to the 20-somethings and then kind of go, go live in a retirement village somewhere? No, I don't mean that at all. Um, I don't mean that we're, that we're passing the baton and then retiring. What I mean is we are passing the baton and then basically welcoming the next generation to the mission that God calls us to together across the generations, that we are to be a multi-generational church, a church that uh, the young people, the 20-somethings, are locking arm with the middle-aged types, are locking arm with the, the senior citizen types. Together, we're locking arms and living in the gospel and walking forward into what God calls us. So that's the picture, just so you know. But a critical part of that is this transition of transitioning the next generation from really from childhood to full adulthood and participation in the church. And as we've talked and prayed, uh, have discerned that this is a key thing for us right now. That as a church, we have a lot of people who are middle-aged. And if you're in your mid-30s to your 50s, whether you like the term or not, you're middle-aged. And we're glad you're here. And there's a lot of us in this age group. Uh, and there's God bringing younger people along. And it's important for us to just think biblically what it looks like to transition, to transition to where they are full uh, adults and members with us. So that's what we're doing in this series. We're, we're, we're determining to look at the Word and, and understand these things, and by God's grace, establishing a biblical benchmark for us. We don't want to be a church that in 20, 30 years is just full of a sea of gray heads worshiping God and remembering the good old days. That's not our goal. We want lots of gray heads in our church, but we want to have an integrated church together, walking in the things that God has called us to and not just looking back to what He did, but looking forward to what He will do altogether. So we're going to look at today Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, I think, is a good place for us to examine some truths about passing the baton. And let me give you a little background before we read. We're going to read uh, verses 6 through 15 in this section. And just a little background to the story. This section of Scripture falls in the storyline of God's people where God's people had, had been given a promise actually by God through Abraham that He would make them as numerous as the stars in the sky, that He would bless the whole world through 
Abraham's descendants, that they would possess the, the gates of their enemies, that they would live in this promised land. And, and if you follow the storyline, you'll see that the, the people were taken captive in Egypt and made slaves, and they were brutally oppressed as slaves. It was a miserable existence. And they cried out to God, and God heard them. And God delivered them. He delivered them powerfully from this powerful nation. This nation that, that was, was tremendously powerful in its day, represented the best of mankind perhaps, apart from God, who oppressed God's people. And God delivered them with power and brought them out of the land and called them to relate to Him uh, as their God. He had been gracious to them in delivering them from Egypt and working in power and now was calling them to relate to Him based on that grace in this covenant of faith and obedience under Moses, through Moses. He called them out and He was bringing them into the Promised Land and He told them to go into the Promised Land and to conquer it. The Promised Land was full of people that were mighty and very evil. And God had, God had raised up Joshua to lead the people to to conquer the land to really uh, realize the promise that had been made to Abraham even. And they went and they conquered and, and it was wonderful. They went in and conquered these, these mighty warriors, these great nations, these very evil nations. And they occupied the land. So they were at this, this key point in history where they, had, where they were experiencing the fulfillment of these promises. And that's where our story starts. So let's read together. Actually, let's pray first and we'll read God's Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, for these things that You have done and how they instruct us now here today in 2011 in Haverhill. Lord, You are the living God and You are sovereign over all things. And Lord, You have ordained that these things would happen not only for the benefit of that generation, but for our benefit. And You are intent on speaking to us today. We thank You for that. Thank you for your amazing mercy towards us, the blood of Christ, the life of Christ through whom we have forgiveness and acceptance. And Lord, you now treat us as sons and daughters to whom you love to speak and instruct. So speak to us and lead us and teach us and be magnified in it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them 
And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Judges chapter 2, 6 to 15. This is a story in the, in the storyline of God's people that is a sobering story. And it serves as a good background for us as we launch into this mini-series talking about passing the baton. Really, this for us is a bad example of what not to do. But we can learn from it. We're going to dig into it. We're going to learn from it. We're going to learn some general things about how to pass the baton. What needs to happen for us to pass the baton. Really, as we reflect on the negative example here, there will be two things I think we'll see from this. First, we'll see the crisis that occurred. And then from this text, and really the whole of Scripture as well, we'll see the cure. And that's our basic outline for today. I'm going to talk about the crisis and the cure. Now, as, as I said, this story happens at a critical juncture in the history of God's people. It actually happens right at a high point. It's a high point in the history of God's people. The promises given to Abraham are being realized. They've, they've, Receive the covenant through Moses. God has been with them. And, and they've been told uh, because, God, because of God's promises, because of what God has done, because of His commitment to His people in covenant, they are now to go into this land and conquer the land and realize the fulfillment of the promises. It's a high point. And under Joshua's leadership, they've gone and they have conquered pretty much everybody in the land. Some remain, though. And it's this high point uh, in the Scripture, that the story starts to transition as, as it's time to pass the baton, something horrible happens. Instead of it being a high point in watching all that would happen, all that's supposed to happen, and, and, and just to, to tell you what should have happened, um, what ultimately happens in Scripture, in, the, in the, the end of the story, the people should have conquered. The people should have been established in the Lord. There should eventually have been a king that was raised up. And they, would have, uh, they should have gone and, and even conquered more land and then stood as a beacon to the whole world, had an influence on the whole world ultimately to see uh, who God is and what sort of people He creates in covenant. That was, that was what should have happened. That's ultimately what happens in Christ, by the way. That's why I can say that's what should have happened. But at this critical time, that's not what happened. Sadly, tragically, it's not what happened. Uh, it, it's it's um, just to maybe make a, a modern day uh, analogy to this. Uh, just, just imagine it's at the end of World War II. We know that was a critical time in our history. Germany's been defeated. Japan's been defeated. This threat has been taken care of. And imagine that at that time, um, the season of prosperity came. And in many ways it did. But, but just kind of add to that story. Imagine if, if in that, somehow God just was pouring out blessing and, and, and Christianity was, was making inroads in the whole world and there was this, this opportunity now to influence the whole world for Christ after this great war, defeating this great evil. And you stood at this critical juncture in time and there was all this opportunity before you, but something happened as the baton was supposed to be passed to that next generation generation, they just dropped it. And all this promise, all this opportunity turned into a horrible tragedy where evil kind of came back and, and the opportunity was lost. That's what's going on 
in the story. That's what happens in Judges chapter 2. And really the whole book of Judges as well. This generation did not know the Lord and did not know what He had done. And really, Joshua's generation somehow failed utterly in passing the baton to the next generation. They failed. As glorious as that generation was, as wonderful as they were in conquering the land and walking in the promises of God, they failed to pass the baton to the next generation. Therefore, they failed seriously, tragically for all the good that they did. And you might think, well, so what? I mean, you know, they just weren't as, the next generation wasn't as zealous. You know, they didn't, they didn't conquer the land. But I mean, how bad could it get? Well, the story goes on and tells us how bad it gets. The fruit of not knowing the Lord and what He had done for Israel and not being shaped by that truth and not being called by that truth to finish the work of the Lord of conquering the land, the fruit of not recognizing those things is this in verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. These people became as evil as the people that occupied the land. And even worse, Serving these false demonic entities. Doing horrible things. And if you read this, the, the story of the book of Judges, it's a, it's a tragic, tragic book in many ways. What you see is cycle after cycle of the people abandoning the Lord, not knowing the Lord, not knowing what He had done, not passing the baton. And these new generations are raised up who don't know the Lord and they go into evil. And then God brings... Discipline on His people. He's a zealous God. He brings discipline. And they, they end up crying out to God and God brings deliverance to them. But, so there's these cycles of abandoning God and hitting the very bottom and then God coming through. But as you walk through the book, you'll see that the cycles actually are downward cycles because as that happens, their sin gets worse and worse and the deliverers that come to them are not, are, get worse and worse themselves. You get to the end of the book and things decline, and there are unspeakable atrocities in the book of Judges. Hang on, by the way. We're going to get to some good news. <laughs> but we need to be warned by this passage. We need to be appropriately warned by the book of Judges. The book of Judges was set uh, before the people of God to teach and instruct us. It was set before the people uh, so that we would learn. And we would learn what God has for us. It is set in a whole storyline of Scripture that we will address as we go through this. So hang on. It's a tragic story. And maybe you think, well, you know, that's the Old Testament people of God. It was different. I mean, this is the ancient world. This is in a place I've never been to. These people are not like us. These are different. It's a different circumstance. We're the New Testament people of God. Things are different. Well, yes, they are. But no, they're not. The history of Christianity is full of stories just like this one. In the Muslim world today, it's interesting and I think important for us to note that much of many of the areas, many of the major cities, many of the areas where now Islam is dominant were at one time places of vibrant Christian faith and community vibrant Christian faith and community. When we read through the book of Acts and we watch the, the gospel going forward and what it's doing, it changed lives, it changed cultures. But nowadays, those very places are strongholds of Islam. Cities like Alexandria, 
Places like Tunisia, Syria, Antioch, Istanbul, all have fallen to a false religion. Side point, I'm not saying that it's utterly evil, Islam is not utterly evil, but it is false. And it is not truth. And these areas have fallen to Islam. And it looks like in some ways that Europe might be next. These places of vibrant Christian life and witness. And, and you can read church history. I mean, it, it's beautiful to look at, at what it was like in some of these places. Antioch. We've learned about Antioch. Antioch for centuries was a center of vibrant mission Christianity that went to the world. But over time, they didn't pass the baton. And the next generations, though they were nominal Christians, they did not know the Lord They did not know his deeds in such a way, so when Islam came, they were easy pickings for militant Islam. Because the choice was, you can stay a nominal Christian and be treated like a slave or even killed perhaps, depending. Or you can convert to Islam and be a full citizen in our country with all the benefits. And when you don't really believe and really don't care a whole lot, that choice is obvious, isn't it? Convert. And convert they did by the thousands and even millions. And that whole area of the world largely was changed and converted to Islam. Now there are still substantial Christian remnants. We must remember them, by the way. And there is a vibrant witness now. But there's history to show us that judges too can happen to us. Closer to home, the Puritans. This is a region settled by people who, uh, many of them, not all of them, probably half the population, were, were zealous for the Lord and for the Gospel. And despite what revisionist historians might say, the Puritans were largely a wonderful people who believed God and His Word and loved Him and walked in His ways and and were just uh, full of wisdom and biblical and cultural innovations, very Christ-centered. Yes, they had their defects, but, but if you take them in the context of their time, they're amazing. They really are amazing. And this vibrant generation came and, and, and established uh, a foundation for our country that continues to bless us to this day. But it didn't take many generations for the true heart of Puritanism, the Gospel, the Bible, to die out. And if you study history, you'll see many of the very liberal humanist thinkers of the 1800s who have taken our country in some ways in a bad way um, were descendants of Puritans themselves. I can name names for you if you want. One family, the Beecher family. Does anyone know about the Beecher family? Lyman Beecher was a famous evangelical preacher uh, from Connecticut. Uh, Zealous for the Lord. His daughter was Harriet Beecher Stowe, wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. He had a number of children. And uh, Zealous for the Lord. But one of his sons, Charles Beecher, uh, was removed from his pulpit in Georgetown for liberal and heretical views. It just took one generation in the case of the Beechers, and you can study that. So there are examples everywhere. Let me show you some disturbing statistics. Please hang in there, by the way. (laughs) We've got to go through the warning before we get to the the hope. Here are some statistics. These are more recent examples for us. So the Southern Baptist Family uh, Life Council says 88% 88% of the children raised in evangelical homes leave church at the age of 18 never to return. 88%. 9 out of 10. 
The Assembly of God General Council says as many as 66% of our youth leading up to and shortly after high school graduation turn their backs on Christ and their faith. Culture shock, loneliness, a party environment, and peer pressure result in students leaving their family foundations when on their own. Tom Rayner, in a recent informal survey of 211 bridges, people born between 77 and 94, only 4% of those responded that they were born-again Christians who had trusted in Christ alone. Compared to the national stat for all ages, is like 10 or 20%. So it's a contrast. The Barna Group has said, in fact, the most potent data regarding disengagement is that a majority of 20-somethings, 61% of today's young adults, had been churched at one point during their teen years, but they are now spiritually disengaged. Only one-fifth of 20-somethings have maintained a level of spiritual activity consistent with their high school experiences. Maybe you're not a statistics person, but hear this. Greater than three-quarters of the young people do not receive the baton. The baton is not passed to them. And it's, a, it's an epidemic right now in American Christianity. And maybe even closer to home, just think of your own children. If this stat, God forbid, were true for us, Three out of four children, if you have four, three-quarters of your children will walk away from God not to return. Now, I don't want to send us into a panic. And I don't want to tempt us to look inward or look at the statistics. I don't want to create any pennies running around, the sky's falling, the sky's falling, and, and we're foolish and dismayed. But I do want us to be warned. I want us to be warned. And I want us to realize that the baton does not get passed automatically. Just because you have children and bring them to church, just because you believe in God and and, and you do some of the right things, it doesn't necessarily mean the baton gets passed. I want us to be warned. I want us to be diligent. And I want this sobering reality to call us to seek God, to humble ourselves and cry out to the Lord, and seek Him. Because we don't want this to be a church of one or two generations. We want it to be a church of multiple generations. God willing, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, to eight to a thousand generations if the Lord should remain before He returns. May this be a fruitful church. So I want us to be warned, but I, I want us to be warned for the sake of walking in the ways of the Lord, to seek the Lord and what He's given us in His Word that we might pass the baton. I want us to be good at passing the baton. I want us to establish a culture in our church of passing the baton that happens now while we have opportunity and that remains for for generations to come. God is able to do that. His Word is sufficient. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about the cure. Let's talk about some general ways that God instructs us on how to pass the baton. There are three things in this text, and, and really elsewhere in Scripture I'll draw on, there are three things, three points of hope for us, so that we may not remain depressed and hopeless. First, in the storyline, if we were to read on, we would see that God, even though the, the generations change and their zeal for God changes and their knowledge of God changes, God does not change in the book of Judges. God is a God of mercy. He's a God of covenant. So even as they rebel, He's still there. He's still active. And He disciplines His people and He calls them back to Himself. God does not change so we can put our hope in Him. He is the ultimate answer to passing the baton. Not methods. Not even perspectives. God Himself. The storyline of Judges teaches us that. 
And really, Judges is meant to be read in the whole history of Israel. You were to read the book in the whole context. It was meant to be read with the whole history. And, and we see that pattern of God's faithfulness. God does not change. Second, this book was meant to be read uh, in the context of First and Second Samuel as well. And the story of First and Second Samuel is the story of how God raises up a king. Now, there are wrong reasons they want a king, but ultimately it was God's plan to send them a king. And that king's job... We've learned about this as we've gone through the Psalms. That king's job was to lead God's people in faith and devotion and experience of his presence and his promises. The king's job was to do those things, to to lead the people. And so the storyline leads us to the king, that God has provided a king. And that king, the, the, the exemplary king in the Old Testament is David. And David did fulfill that role in many ways, but we know he failed. And the whole storyline of the Bible teaches us that there's an ultimate king. There's an ultimate king, God, the man, the son of David, Jesus Christ, who is that ultimate king to lead his people in faithfulness, to lead his people in his ways, that we would know God and we would know his glorious ways and we would join him in conquest in his plans. There's a king that's to come. Judges teaches us that. And thirdly, God instructs us. He's faithful to instruct us, to speak to us through his word. So let's take some time to look through this particular passage and in particular verses and how they instruct us about how to pass the baton. In particular, verse 10. It says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. They did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And this is a refrain throughout the book of Judges and really throughout the history of Israel. It's a sad statement. They did not know the Lord or the work that He had done. They did not know that God had delivered His people from Egypt out of slavery. They didn't know that this is a God of covenant who called them to believe Him and relate to Him and walk in Him. They didn't know what He had done and they didn't understand the implications for their own generation that because He had done these things and He was a God of promise, He was calling them to, to live in these things and to walk out the implications in their generation. That's, that's all kind of packed in there. Because every time there's a generation that knows God and what He has done, they know the implications. They walk in the implications of that to carry the mission, the conquest forward. These people didn't. Well, how does that instruct us? It's a negative example. So how do negative examples work? They did not know the Lord and what He had done. So what's the answer? We should not not know the Lord, right? Or make it simpler, we should know the Lord and what He has done for for Israel, for God's people. That is the answer to passing the baton in that passage. The negative example says they failed to pass the baton. Why? They did not know the Lord and what He had done for Israel. So what is the answer? To know the Lord and what He had done for His people, and the implications for their generation as well. That is the answer here. And so our job in passing the baton is to do everything we can in seeking the Lord and relying on the Lord and communicating to our next generation. And by the way, I don't just mean our children. Our children are part of that. God's going to give us next generations through our own children. He's going to give us next generation through things like VBS, children's ministry, important evangelistic ministry, youth ministry, young adult ministry. They're going to come in different ways. They're all to be part of the next generation we are responsible for. And we are to do all we can, all we can to convey to them who God is and what He's done and what that means for them. 
all, we're to use all our gifts, all our abilities in communication and everything in our lifestyle to focus it on communicating to them who God is, what He has done for His people, and what that means for them. Sometimes that last part is left off. We understand it implicitly. That what this means, He has done this. He is this God. And that means that I am to live in the grace of God provided for me and to carry this mission and to spread the good news, to to lead it uh, onward and what God calls us to, to lead God's people onward. So we, we are to do all we can. We are to tell them about it. We are to show them. We are to communicate. We are to use our relationships to do this. And we are to provide context for them to experience God and His, and His character and His works and to see for themselves who He is and how He works under our mentorship. Discipleship in the Bible is not just telling and leaving people there. It's telling and proclaiming, and and then through life on life, and through mentorship, through discipleship, through giving them opportunities to walk out their faith and see, to disciple them in these things. That's what we're called to. That's how you pass the baton. You do all you can to communicate, to convey, and to give them context to walk out those truths and taste and see for themselves that the Lord is good. All those things must be part of passing the baton. And what you'll see over these next three sessions after today is how to do that specifically. And what we're doing, we're dividing up these next three messages into the different age groups. So you're going to hear from Jeff Havisto as he talks about how to do this in the context of children. How do we prepare to pass the baton with our young children? You'll hear from Phil Lowther as he talks about how we begin to pass the baton with our youth teens and that general age. And then you'll hear from me again about how we actually do it, how we pass the baton, how we do it now for young adults, for, for when someone reaches adulthood, it's time for the baton to be passed. And I'll talk about that in Scripture as we look at the, what the Word teaches us. The Word of God is sufficient to instruct us in these things. And that's what we'll be doing. And in particular for us, the, 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 the core of what, who God is, how we know who God is and what He has done for us and, and how we walk out the implications is through the Gospel, through the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the apex of the expression of God's character. That is the apex of what He has done for us. That is the apex of us understanding our mission. The implications for us today flow from the Gospel itself. So we will focus on the Gospel and how it is walked out, how it is communicated, and how we experience its fruits as we pass on the baton. The Gospel, simply this, that God came to earth and became a man. The God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, He lived a perfect life of love and fulfillment of everything mankind was called to and offered up that life on the cross. He offered up His life as a sacrifice to appease the holy justice of God. For the wages of sin is death, the Bible tells us. To sin against God, to rebel against God, means to experience spiritual and ultimate death, to be separated from God both now and if we remain in that state forever. That's what hell is. But Jesus Christ, the God-man, came and lived this righteous life and then offered up Himself for you on the cross to die for your sins, to pay the penalty you deserve to pay so you could be forgiven of all those sins. 
and that not only would you be able to be forgiven, but received into God's family as if you were one of Jesus himself in a sense. The, the rights of, that Jesus earned are yours as you trust in Christ. So the forgiveness of sins is paid for in the cross and acceptance before God. That as you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, all the things that Jesus deserves are yours. It's amazing. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that He died for our sins and rose again for everlasting life on the third day. That is the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And I invite you, if you have not, put your faith in the God-man and Jesus to do that today. That makes all the difference. To be reconciled to a holy and good God is the most wonderful thing any of us could experience. And to walk with Him. This is what He calls us to. He's extended this to us and to the next generation. And this good news, this gospel alone, has the power to capture and hold the hearts of the next generation and the present generation. The gospel, the good news of Christ, the the truth of what He has done, the truth of this victory is the only thing that has the power to capture the hearts and commission to service the next generation and our generation. We don't want to come away from this mini-series confident in some method of passing the baton. Let's not do that. We'll talk about methods. But the core of our confidence is not in the method. It's in the Gospel. The method is merely an avenue to impart the truth and the power that comes with the Gospel to the next generation. Our confidence should not be in the method. Our confidence should not be in our ability to pass the baton. And we should not be more aware of our failure to pass the baton than the power of the Gospel. Our confidence needs to be in the good news. I want us coming away from this mini-series inspired by the power of the Gospel. The Apostle Paul gave his life to the Gospel, to this good news. He gave his life to the good news because he knew its power. He knew what it does when heard and the power of the Spirit, and how it changes lives. He knew that. And so he said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And when he says salvation, he just doesn't mean that initial pray the prayer and be forgiven. He means all that comes with it. The Gospel is the power of salvation to transform lives and churches and cultures. It changes us. It changes churches. It changes generations. It changes cultures. It changes the whole universe. The good news of Jesus Christ is our hope. And it is the core of of transferring the baton, passing the baton to the next generation. That's where we are to put our hope. The Gospel is just fantastic. it's, it's It's like the good news of Christ is living and active. It's not just information. It's a declaration. It's the apex of God's salvation, of His salvific works, of what God's doing. It's it's the proclamation of His victory and all that it means. And it's powerful. When Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, it's the power of God. And he says other things. The picture is almost like the Gospel itself is a living being that does things. That's what he's saying. And for us, in passing the baton, we must understand it. It, It's kind of like a supernatural beneficial virus, perhaps. What I mean by that is when we hear it, the good news is shared with us. When we see the fruit of the good news on display, 
God in his power infects us with something. And this virus gets into our system. And, and it actually it, it messes with us at a very fundamental level. It changes our DNA in a sense. It changes our DNA. It changes our makeup. It actually kills us but then revives us as a new creation. It gets in and changes us. And, and, and it starts to have its work in us and it starts to transform us and make us like Jesus. Individually and corporately. It's really amazing. That's what the Gospel's like. It's like a virus. It comes in. But not only does it do that in us, but as we proclaim it and walk in its fruit and share it with others, it infects others too. And it spreads. And it changes other lives. And it infects churches. And, and, and the fruit of the gospel in people uh, infects and changes even cultures and society. It has, it has an effect on all things. That's what the gospel is like. And what we need to do to pass the baton, folks, is to infect our children with the gospel. To allow the gospel to get in them and allow them to see who God is in it. And to see what He has done and to understand the implications for their generation that they may carry the baton for their generation, realizing this truth has glorious implications for building the kingdom and conquering the land like in Judges for the sake of the king. The band could come up as we close. Judges gives us these three reasons for hope. God doesn't change. God sends His king. God instructs us in His truth, ultimately the Gospel itself. We don't need to repeat the sins of the past. We don't need to fail. God's given us in the Gospel the ability to to pass the baton. And there are many examples in this room and in Christian history of people passing the baton to the next generation. It's happening already. Gladly. It's happened in history. I've shared the story before of Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, godly couple who who loved the Lord, who loved the gospel of grace. They had 11 children, eight daughters and three sons. Can you imagine? Isn't that wonderful? And they brought up their children in the wonder and fruitfulness of the gospel. Their children were infected with the gospel virus and learned of its wonder and goodness. And their children had children and so forth and so on. And in 1900, a study was done of the family. And that's what you see there. From this godly couple infected with the gospel. It is reported that of their descendants, there were practically no lawbreakers. So nobody with a conviction or anything. Uh, this is 1900. This is 150 years later. Okay? Um, there were no, practically no lawbreakers. More than 100 lawyers. 30 judges. 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 62 physicians, 100 clergymen, missionaries, and theological professors, 80 elected to public office, including three mayors, three governors, members of Congress, senators, and a vice president, 60 who had attained prominence in authorship or editorial life with 135 books of merit, and 75 army or navy officers from this one couple who were infected with the gospel and understood how to pass the baton. I actually am good friends with an eighth generation descendant of Jonathan Edwards. And he is a believer, an exemplary husband, father, and entrepreneur. Eight generations later. Can you believe that? What an example. What a goal. 
That's what I'm praying for. Eight or even more for us as a church. That we might learn how to pass the baton. That we might pass it to the next generation and see them exceed us. And perhaps if the Lord should tarry in the year 2150, at some gathering, they'll be able to mark the descendants of King of Grace Church who are fruitful in society for good and the sake of the Gospel. Let us learn as we seek God in this mini-series, as we seek His Word, how to pass the baton for His glory, the good of our descendants. Let's pray.